Hello and welcome to Hear Her Voice. I'm Laura Whitmore and in this podcast I'm celebrating the incredible range of artistry and talent of women in music. Across the series I'm chatting to some very special guests as we enjoy the songs, albums and lyrics from some of the most iconic women in music through the decades. Today my theme is breaking the mould, how female artists have used their songs and their music to express their identity and to go against the grain. We look back with awe to the late, great Dusty Springfield, who not only had a voice which we will forever remember, she was an early champion of LGBTQ plus and human rights. Since then, women from across the musical genres have taken up that baton. I mean, we've got Patti Smith, Grace Jones, Debbie Harry uh, and Bette Ditto. I mean, they've all attempted to break moulds and defy female stereotypes in their own unique ways. These are a class of artists who don't just own their identity, they wear it with pride. In this episode, I speak to Lauren Maybury from Churches. Lauren is the lead vocalist of a band which has gone from the Glasgow indie scene to rule the world. She speaks to me about surviving and thriving as a female frontwoman. Even in early interviews, they would always ask Ian and Martin how they write everything and they would ask me about like hair products. At that time, I was like, I don't want to be in ASOS magazine while the guys get to be in NME. Like, that's, not, that's not how I want to do this. But first, let's hear from the wonderful Amy LeMay. Amy's made music her life and work. And she's been a long-time champion of LGBTQ plus rights using music as a platform. Firstly, through her work as a writer, presenter and DJ. And also via her pioneering club night, Ducky. In 2016, she was appointed London's Night Czar by London Mayor Sadiq Khan, where she's been tasked with promoting London's nightlife both in the UK and internationally. I know she's a huge Dusty Springfield fan, so I wanted to ask her about Dusty and the other women in music she holds up as icons. Remember, you can hear all of today's featured tracks and more at our Hear Her Voice Break the Mold playlist available on Spotify. You can find the link in our show notes. Enjoy. Amy, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing really well, thanks. Yep, Good. came here on the bus and feeling bright and breezy, <laughs> ready to talk about women in music. Because <laughs> we have so much to talk about, Amy. We're going to talk about women in music who have broken the mould. But before we kick off, I want to ask you like, about what you were listening to when you were growing up. So you grew up you're in New Jersey, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I grew up in a small coastal working class town in, in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess like most kids, it's like whatever records your parents had lying around. Mm-hmm. So my mom always had loads of like Mamas and Papas albums yeah. Yeah. and she was into the zombies mm-hmm. and stuff. So, you know, that's my earliest memory of music. But then when I was 10, my uncle bought me two albums for Christmas. This changed my life. They were Donna Summers mm-hmm. on the radio mm-hmm. and Blondie's Parallel Lines. Mm. Okay. What a great uncle. (laughs) I know. I know. He's still amazing. Uh, But, you know, having those two albums at the age of 10 Mm. and thinking, oh, my. I mean, every photograph of me after that, you know, receiving those as a gift Mm -hmm. was me in front of the stereo with those giant sort of 70s headphones Mm -hmm. (laughs) just completely Mm -hmm. glued to the music. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that was so important because... They're, you know, they're two incredibly powerful women Mm. with very strong voices. And that uh, I just remember staring at the cover of Parallel Lines, you know, and Debbie Harry's Mm. there on the front cover with her. I have it on my wall, actually, that album. You know it. So it's like her hands on her hips, her her legs, you know, so she's in a very kind of powerful, strong strong Mm. position there. All the guys are behind her. Mm -hmm. You know who's boss. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh. 
I want, I want this. You know, I want more of this. This is incredible. Except for someone maybe like Debbie Harry, it was probably a lot of men you know, at that time, a lot of male musicians. Was that something that you were kind of aware of or thought about or...? I, I was probably a feminist when I came out of the womb, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. So I, I can't imagine that that it would have passed me by. Yeah. But I think also for women mm-hmm. at that time in music, mm-hmm. it was very difficult to forge your own identity mm-hmm. and to be in a band. Mm-hmm. Like there were lots of female singers mm-hmm. who were singing other people's material or... Mm-hmm interpreting songs or whatever mm-hmm. but very few rock stars that were like yes. yeah like i don't know i, I think about the go-go's for yeah. example who are writing performing you know producing like doing all of their own stuff yeah with that pop sensibility yeah incredibly powerful mm-hmm. you know same with blondie headed up by debbie harry mm-hmm. she had her guys behind her yeah. but you had no you know you had no doubt who was the boss yeah and and so I think that that has changed now. Mm-hmm. There's a wider variety of women, creative women across all genres mm-hmm. that are able to forge not just their own voices, but their own musicality, their own talents. Mm-hmm. You know, one, th- one artist I feel really sad about that passed away far too young is someone like Mama Cass, mm-hmm. you know, from Mamas and the Papas, mm-hmm. who had such an incredible voice and was so gifted at a time when there was so much oppression for women mm-hmm. in the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, she was ostracized from the band for being fat, even though Cass was the only one who could sing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we're going to be talking about an artist who has really you know, broken that mold, certainly mm-hmm. around weight and identity and everything. Yeah. So, Well, well actually, there's, there's a few... Um, songs that I want to talk about from the playlist that we put together for this episode of Breaking the Mold. Who do you want to talk about first? Well, shall we talk about Beth Ditto first? I think just, so. Just because it, it of leads on nicely. About. Yeah. yeah. So the feature track we want to talk about now is Fire by Beth Ditto. 2017 was the year. Let's hear a little. That was Fire by Beth Ditto. And I think there's so much meaning behind this song because this was the opening song on Beth's first solo album, having split from Gossip in 2016. What a strong song. Talk to me about why you chose this, Amy. Well, first of all, I love Beth Ditto. There's, I love everything about Beth Ditto, but I think Gossip changed so many people's lives mm-hmm. through their music mm-hmm. and everyone was waiting to see what Beth was going to do next. Mm -hmm. And then she came out with this song. And it's like, whoa. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, talk about a big statement. Mm -hmm. And to hear her voice there, almost kind of like really stripped back Mm -hmm. in a way. Like Mm -hmm. the music seemed really stripped back. And we're used to these kind of big bangers and dance floor classics Mm -hmm. and, and things from, you know, from her band before. So I just, I love this track because it lets us listen to a different side of Beth. 
I love as well with music. Um, not music, sorry, like love songs. This is if you want my love, you get up. Yeah. You get up and you get my love. <laughs> yeah. Which is a different kind of spin on, on what most songs are written about. Yeah, absolutely. And I would expect nothing less from her. <laughs> but, you know, she's she's always broken the mold. Yeah. With everything that she's done, whether it's her vocal support for LGBTQ plus issues, you know, her her support for feminism, just being out as a as a queer woman herself, as a fat woman, as a working class woman, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like all of these things that you don't really get to glimpse mm-hmm. in, you know, if you, if you make a big in music. Mm-hmm. And she she didn't just break the mold. I mean, they didn't <laughs> ha- even have one for her in the first place. <laughs> There's no doubt that being an incredibly gifted artist like she is also mm-hmm. takes a toll, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you're outspoken, you're going to have problems. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she's pushed forward. And as a result, her fans, myself included, are incredibly fierce mm-hmm. um, and protective of her mm-hmm. and love her mm-hmm. and will would listen and buy like pretty much whatever she put out. <laughs> I want to kind of strip back some of some of these lyrics because it kind of starts off slow and it builds up this momentum. Mm. Um, I'm just going to read out some of the lyrics. Hands too burned sitting on the side of the road ain't gonna an honest feeling in my bones felt like a fever came on like a stone but what I felt it can't be helped no more and then it's get up and it's this momentum and it's she really uses the power of words mm. to it's, you're building that momentum throughout the whole song. I think it's also a testament to her southern upbringing with mm-hmm. that kind of like all right we're you know we're bringing you in and then we're there's going to be a big rabble rousing moment it's yeah. almost like she's, she's valling up everybody yeah. and you know and saying this this is me if you like you say if you want my love yeah you're going to have to stand up for it you're going to have to make yourself known mm-hmm. like this isn't stuff that i just dole out <laughs> to anybody mm-hmm. that's very powerful So in 1995, you started putting on your club night ducky on a Saturday night at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern in London. When it first started, where was your mindset? What was happening? Yeah, well, at the time, Mm -hmm. LGBTQ plus clubs were very male dominated Mm -hmm. and they were dominated by one type of music. And that was house music, Happy Handbag House. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea that you could be a queer person and into indie music was just like, what? Mm-hmm. My friends and I, all we wanted to do was like drink beer and listen to David Bowie mm-hmm. and like shuffle around on a dance floor. Mm-hmm. But there was nowhere we could do that. Mm-hmm. The background to that, you know, politically was that the UK was a place where we didn't have equality. Mm-hmm. And so our spaces, you know, our dedicated LGBTQ plus spaces were incredibly important to us then, mm-hmm. as they still are now, but even more so then. Uh, so we wanted to be able to dance to Blur, mm-hmm. David Bowie, The Smiths, snog who we wanted to snog mm-hmm. and not have to. Did you uh, feel if you were in it. another space that, yeah, it wasn't safe to do that in other spaces? Yeah, um, absolutely. Because there is always that risk. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the 90s mm-hmm. and it was a time when you wouldn't walk down the street holding the hand of your partner, Mm -hmm. let alone kiss them in public. You could, and I had been at the time, physically removed from places for doing exactly that. By management? Yes. So not necessarily people who who were going there, actual No, no, the management saw me kiss my girlfriend on the cheek, actually. (laughs) It wasn't even a snog. (laughs) And we were obviously 
together. Yeah. And they said, you're making other people uncomfortable. We need you to leave. When was this? Oh, it was in the 90s. Not so long ago. No, not so long ago. ago. But the positive flip side of that is that my friends and I got together and we started Ducky. Mm -hmm. So my my friend Simon and I, you know, were the main driving force of that. And the music was at the heart of it. And performance was at the heart of it. Mm -hmm. And so it stood the test of time. Uh, We've been going for 25 years now, Mm -hmm. still welcoming people that were there on day one and not just them but like actually their kids now which is quite strange (laughs) we've had people meet couples meet on the dance floor gay male couple meet you know they're friends with the lesbian couple who met on the dance floor they go off they had children together they bring their kids to the club now they're like in their 20s and i just think wow we've created a family Mm -hmm. and we have a soundtrack Mm -hmm. to that family So that makes me incredibly proud. I want to talk about the power of songs. Um, we've already talked about Beth Ditto. We have to talk about incredible female artist, Dusty Springfield. We're going to go back to the 60s, 1969, and let's hear a little bit of Son of a Preacher Man. Billy Ray was a preacher's son, and when his daddy would visit, he'd come along. When they gather around and started talking, that's when Billy would take me walking. Out through the backyard we go walking. Then he look into my eyes. Lord knows to my surprise, the only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. See what he was. The intro, you can't help but feel the sass straight away. Dusty Springfield there. Um, originally, it, it was offered to Aretha Franklin, but at the time she thought it might be a little bit too offensive for that time with, with the lyrics. Talk to me about what this song means to you. Well, <laughs> it's one of those songs mm-hmm. that whenever you hear it, you just stop dead in your tracks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's so evocative mm-hmm. and... The message to me is an interesting one because, of course, we get this narrative, okay, you know, Billy Ray was the preacher's son, Mm -hmm. the only one who could ever teach teach me, the only (laughs) one who could ever reach, you know, and it's unexpected Mm. because you'd expect the preacher's son to be the kind of good upstanding young man. (laughs) Sensible. Mm -hmm. And what Dusty is saying here is... um, I think we all need to look beyond <laughs> our face value, face yeah. value. exactly. And, and so from that perspective and looking at Dusty's personal life, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense. And Dusty is one of those singers that she had this uh, unparalleled gift for bringing emotion and, and sending that emotion out mm-hmm. in her voice. Mm-hmm. And... This song for me is almost like a proxy. Yeah, yeah. It's like a proxy almost for her own life. In terms of Breaking the Mold, which is the title of this episode, the Guardian obituary said of Dusty, the only white woman singer worthy of being mentioned in the same breath as the great divas of 1960s soul music. So, I mean, Dusty was up there with the Aretha Franklin's, the Gladys Knights, the Dionne Warwick, the Mary Wells. And for Dusty to be, you know, amongst those incredible women, she had to fight and work and be the best. Yeah, she really did. And she suffered for it. Mm. You know, her her struggles with drug and alcohol addiction were, you know, well known and... Dusty didn't just stand up for herself either. And I think that that's 
one of the reasons why, for example, there were so many other artists and black artists that respected her so much. Mm -hmm. You know, she was deported from South Africa because she went on tour to South Africa in 1964 and refused to play to segregated audiences. And she did some mixed concerts. Mm -hmm. The authorities marched her off stage took her to her hotel, seized her passports and the passports of the band and put them on the next plane out. And she was very vocal about what happened. Mm. And so when we look at what's happening now, you know, and, and sort of allies standing up for people who maybe don't have a voice, mm -hmm. Dusty was one of those people from the very beginning. And I think that's incredibly powerful. You know, she her band was always racially integrated mm. at a time when even in the UK, it was very controversial. And so she was pushing boundaries, mm -hmm. all sorts of boundaries of sexuality, of gender, of race. And again, somebody who you know, died way before their time. I'd like to dig a little deeper into Dusty Springfield's remarkable life and incredible career. So let's hear from our resident music expert. The other Laura is in the house. Over to you, Laura. Thanks, Laura. So for me, the beauty of Dusty Springfield's story is how she transformed herself because of pop music, just like millions of people did because of hers. As a girl, she was playing Mary Isabel Catherine Bernadette O'Brien, born into an Irish family who lived in London. Dusty was a bit of a tomboy, and she got her nickname from playing football in the streets. She also loved music, the whole family did, and developed a particular love of American jazz. I can't think of much footage from pop history that I would love to see more than a 12-year-old Dusty heading off to a record shop across town to record a cover of the Irving Berlin song when the midnight choo-choo train leaves for Alabama. I'm so charmed by this image of a young girl who may not ever have left the country, trundling off to town to sing about the American South. But I'm also in awe of it as a bold statement of self. This is where I see myself. This is who I want to be. As a teenager, Dusty joined a few bands and had some success. The hits she had with the Springfields in the early 60s didn't leave much of a lasting impression. They took a trip to Nashville in search for an authentic southern sound, which kind of backfired for the band because Dusty came home from the States obsessed not with country, but with R&B. Now her solo career had its direction. Dusty continued her remarkable self-creation into that historic look of hers. She wore her mascara so thick it became a running joke among her collaborators. And her black eyeliner was not so much a wing in the sense of an elegant sparrow or a hummingbird, but as hefty as the arms of a Boeing 747. This thick black halo painted almost up to her eyebrows. Maybe while she was in Nashville, she had picked up on the wisdom that the higher the hair, the closer to God, and so she teased that blonde beehive skywards. Her look became synonymous with the 60s, but it's also dramatically extra, so absurd and extreme that maybe this former tomboy was subtly winking at the constructions of femininity, at least if she could actually wink under that dead weight of mascara. Anyway, it's no surprise to learn that she is a major influence on any number of drag queens. Dusty was clearly obsessed with perfecting the nuances of her self-presentation. Unusually for a female artist of the 60s, or the 70s, or most of the 80s for that matter, she self-produced her music and was notorious for her painstaking approach. If it sounded better to her to sing in an echoey stairwell than a posh studio, as she did for the towering, desolate, you don't have to say you love me, then she was absolutely going to. And that song, by the way, became her only UK number one single, which is surprising when we think about how commercially and culturally dominant Dusty was throughout the 60s. 
Songs like I Just Don't Know What To Do With Myself and Son Of A Preacher Man established Dusty as the leading star of Blue-Eyed Soul, which is the term for white artists performing R&B and soul. But Dusty refused to just coast on the artistry of the black musicians she loved so much, whose music was often segregated from the mainstream pop charts. Here, she was clear that she was not her own creation, but actually deeply indebted to the stars of Motown, artists like The Supremes, Stevie Wonder, Smokey Robinson and Martha and the Vandellas. She even introduced these acts to the UK, hosting a TV special to show them off. Sometimes, she once said, if she was lucky, one of the Vandellas would oversleep and she got to step in, an occasion she once called the biggest thrill of her life. I respect Dusty's respect for her influences so much. By that point, she was adored by millions and she could always revel in being the main event if she wanted to. But Dusty had clearly never forgotten how it felt to be a fan, for pop music to offer the potential for breaking the mould, for transformation, the kind that starts subtle revolutions. Do you remember when you first heard Dusty? Well, yeah, I think anybody who first hears Dusty, you're just like, you're convinced that... It's a black voice. It's a black voice. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you realise, and it's like, oh, oh, this... What, she's some Irish lady from North London <laughs> who went to Catholic school and put on a big beehive wig and you're just like, whoa. You know, Again, and- <laughs> going about, not going with face value and not, you know, not doing the music that you're expected to do. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. And, you know, the thing about Dusty as well is I think she had a good sense of humor mm. in that she took all of that hyper femininity to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. You know, you see her in those incredibly long beaded gowns Mm -hmm. and big hair and Mm -hmm. big eyelashes and you look now at young women mm-hmm. and the way they're styling themselves. It's <laughs> yeah, not that not far. That she's, still, no. she's really still and influencing us. you can us. do that as well. I think sometimes we think to be a feminist, you can't look a certain way. You can't want to play around with hair and yeah. makeup. You can. I mean, like Dolly Parton is someone who's kind of proved that before and has been knocked because of how she dresses. And, yeah. and well, I mean, she puts people right in their place. Yeah. And it's okay to like play around with things like that if it's what you want yeah. to do to explore your own sense of creativity. Absolutely. I love Dolly Parton's quote. She says, it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. (laughs) Again, she's got that humour, you know? Yeah. Self-effacing. And with Dusty, I think she also struggled in her life because of her sexual identity and expectations at the time Mm. for women. You know, Mm. it was very constrictive for women just generally. And to be outed or to kind of, you know, say, actually, my, you know, my partner is female would be the death of her career Mm -hmm. forever and ever. Amen. And so I think that must have been incredibly stressful Mm. for her because she was such a huge star. Tell me a little bit about her coming out or wanting to come out or or what happened. Yeah, I mean, there was, she did an interview for one of the popular newspapers of, of the day back in the 60s and Sort of was asked a question about her love life, mm-hmm. as was every single woman. <laughs> it's like, who are you dating? Mm-hmm. Who are you going out? Who's your mm-hmm. husband? Mm-hmm. You know, all of that nonsense. And she said, oh, well, you know, it would be just as easy for me to fall in love with a woman as it would be a man. Mm-hmm. Stop press, drop mic, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. everything. And, and so this was effectively her coming out mm-hmm. and although she never and I said the, the lesbian word the L word or, or anything mm-hmm. like that it was just mere, merely exploring the idea that 
put her in a lot of difficulty. And as a result, her career just took a nosedive. After um, she made those comments. Yeah. And then she she went, she moved to Amsterdam. She had, had a lot of difficulties with drugs and alcohol. It was a very dark time for her. Mm. And it wasn't until the mid 80s when the Pet Shop Boys asked Dusty to appear uh, with them on their track, What Have I Done to Deserve This?, that brought her to a whole new audience who probably had never even heard of her before. But it just wasn't the same. Mm. And this came from telling the truth, mm. her truth. And that's the sad thing. She a role model for you. Oh my gosh, yes. I'm not doing too well <laughs> following in her footsteps, but, <laughs> but she's but definitely... about creating that space by using the voice, by what power you have to create a space, bringing people together, talking about issues, yeah. celebrating music. I think also realizing that, you know, we've all got our own identities. Mm. You know, I'm a queer woman. You know, I, I've got the battles that I want to fight, mm-hmm. but also realizing that my battles also align with other battles mm-hmm. and that we're stronger together. Mm-hmm. And so as a white woman... I try to be the best anti-racist ally I can be. Mm-hmm. You know, Dusty was doing that. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way she approached it of this, I've got this power, I've got this voice, I'm doing these concerts. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you want to see me, it's got to be mixed. Mm-hmm. And look what look what happened to her. So taking those risks, um, I mean, obviously, <laughs> my risks are on a different scale from hers. But it is inspiration mm-hmm. because you can see like if, if you do stand up to the bullies and if you do stand up for what is right, mm-hmm. in the end, it's seen and you're remembered. You're absolutely right. Amy, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you. My next guest, Lauren Maybury, is the lead vocalist in the Scottish synth pop band Churches. Now, the band formed in 2011 and two years later, they released their Recover EP, which included the breakthrough hit, The Mother We Share, Their debut studio album, The Bones of What You Believe, was released in 2013, elevating them into the sound of 2013, a list by the BBC. When Churches released a playlist of their influences on Apple Music, it featured plenty of female artists who have broken the mould in their own unique ways, including Bjork and Annie Lennox. When I spoke to Lauren, she and the band were touring their fourth album, Screen Violence, in the States. Lauren has called it a semi-concept album about male violence. Intriguing. She spoke to me from her New York hotel room about her musical inspirations, the women she looks up to, as well as surviving and thriving as the front woman in the band. Lauren, hello, how are you? I am good, thank you, yes. I am on a very squeaky chair, I've just noticed, but oh, it's the only chair in this it's hotel the chair. Room. So if you hear it's creaking, it's not my spirit, it's just the chair. <laughs> you are in a hotel because you are in the middle of a US tour of screen violence. Uh, where are you at the moment? Uh, we are in New York, so it feels weird to be in New York and not really able to do anything, but that's the rules mm. of the tour. It's just that you need to be in the venue or... In the hotel room, you can't really go anywhere outside of that, just for the COVID safety of the situation. Yeah, so you're in you're in your band bubble. Yes, yes, just the the four of us. For a lot of musicians, there there was a gap of no tours happening in the last few years, mm. and I, even though yes, the protocols are stricter, how is it to kind of be back up there on stage? It's been really special because playing live was always such a huge part of the band. We've yeah. always toured pretty hard and. I don't know. We always kind of try and talk about it as most of the time when you get that wake up call in your career, it's after 
it's too late sort yeah. of you know you take so, it for granted yeah so it was helpful to get a bit of a slap in the face for better or worse and realize that you should appreciate things and I do think there's a different energy to shows this time when we've gone out maybe I like to believe it's a cross-section between us making a decent record and just people really wanting live music and to mm. experience songs that matter to them in that mm-hmm. space uh, Lauren, we're here today to celebrate women in music and female artistry. And I kind of want to take you back. Um, your first memories of music growing up and and what women spoke to you? Well, neither of my parents are musicians, but there was always so much music playing in the house. And mm. my mum is, remains a huge Whitney Houston fan. So mm. there was a lot of listening to Whitney when we were kids. And I remember being adamant for a very long time that the Bodyguard soundtrack was the best album <laughs> of all time. And that kind of big pop diva stuff is so hard to do, but so hard to make emotional. And I remember mm. being so obsessed with Whitney Houston. I would like watch videos, what, like have a VHS of her music videos and just watch the way she was singing and how she moved her mouth and all those things. And yeah, like to me, I'm like, she's just one of a kind. Uh, this episode, as I said, it's, it's called Breaking the Mold. And I'm just wondering for you, what artists broke the mold. You, know, you talked to me about Whitney Houston. The first time you hear her voice, I remember the first time I heard her voice as a kid, I'm like, what is this? Like, this yes. is, I've never heard anything like person. it. Uh, one person. I don't think I've ever heard anyone <laughs> sing like that ever. For you, I guess, what does breaking the mold mean for you? I almost wonder if in the abstract, I couldn't even describe it, but in the moment you always know. Like, I remember mm. hearing Alanis Morissette for the first time mm. when I was a kid mm. and just being yeah. like, what the hell? That Jagged Little Pill album. Oh my. Yeah, her voice is so iconic because she was using it so differently to anybody in that mm-hmm. space that popular space and I think yeah somebody like her or PJ Harvey PJ Harvey I think oh. is a massive inspiration because she's just no you can't no one can disrespect PJ Harvey but I'm sure they've tried she's made records where it's the noisiest scariest least feminine thing in some ways but it is like the a lot of the rage in those early records to me feels completely feminine and it's a very yeah. specific kind of female storytelling that she's doing and then she can go off and write weird murder ballads about something else and I just think yeah. that sounds like the most freeing way to be as an artist that she's making whatever she wants to make at whatever point and yeah I just love love her love her being a female front person of a band uh, did you ever feel like you were under extra scrutiny from the media in particular I think at the very beginning of the band because uh, I worked a little bit in media before churches started I was not I was not prepared for what was going to happen but I think I could sort of see the conversation around the band starting to happen and then I got really panicked and paranoid that this kind of separation was going to happen to me and even in early interviews they would always ask Ian and Martin how they write everything and they would ask me about like hair products and I was like Mm. why do I spend all my time doing this if this is what it's going to be so then mm. I think, in a way, maybe we went too far the other way, where I was like, I want to shut down any kind mm. of discussion or promo around anything to do with the fact that I am female. I want to be taken on equal level mm. with the guys. And I do mm. think, in a way, that made it harder for us to access a female fan base because mm. we shut off those things. But I was so conscious that at that time, I was like, I don't want to mm. be in ASOS magazine while the guys get to be in NME. Like, that's not mm. <laughs> that's not how I want to do this. Mm. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, I can kind of look at pictures of the first record and trace the mental health path <laughs> as I go through it. I'm like, there you were fine and you'd never really spoken to any journalists, so you didn't know. Yeah. And then 
I start wearing less and less makeup and wearing baggier and baggier clothes and eating less and less. Because I'm like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, you're conscious that like you are being looked at and you don't want to be, be looked judged. at. And yeah, yeah, if you make it less likely to be commented on and you hide yourself more and more, then people will leave you alone. And that's not, that wasn't to naturally work really. Yeah. So I think it was helpful once we got to the end of the first record to have some time off and be like, okay, I should try and use this time to recalibrate your relationship with what that means. But because, mm-hmm. you know, we're incredibly lucky. This just, this doesn't happen for very many people, but especially not mm. people where we come from. Yeah, it was a learning curve for sure. <laughs> is dressing up and getting made up an important part of the persona you channel on stage? And I mean, does that help you at all with with mm. breaking that mold? Yes, 100%. And I think that's the thing that I've tried to find a better balance with going forward because right at the very first church's gigs, I would put on face paint and I love mm. Annie Lennox and Grace Jones and mm-hmm. Karen O and all those Mm. women who use those things as part of their art like your physicality is part of your art but then I became conscious that other people were saying oh well your physical appearance is Mm. they're not taking it as part of your performance or your storytelling it's because you're Mm. a woman then your body is a thing it's not part Mm -hmm. of the so I'm a sexualized yeah yeah Yeah. and I do think that's something that I've had to work on a lot because I don't know how to sit with certain parts of it because I'm like well I, it's not like I get up in the morning and I'm like, ah, oh, I'll just go out wearing whatever and do this gig. I don't really care mm. because I do think about that stuff. But then mm. I'm like, mm, am I thinking about it too much? You probably overthink it. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and I get stuck. But I think at this point, I like the fact that when we do shows, there's girls and guys that come to the show and they've done the kind of glittery face paint makeup that we do. And yeah. I like mm. the idea that it can be something expressive that you can feel a part of something rather than excluded from it. Mm. Have any other women in music supported you in your career? Um, quite early in the band, Shirley Manson from mm. Garbage reached out to us and she didn't have to do mm. that. And obviously I adore, I adore mm. Shirley. Even before this, I was like, wow, mm. especially that she's from Scotland and she has always blazed her own mm. trail and she was in situations that I can't imagine mm. being in. Like I think about what life's like now and I can't imagine what that was like for her mm. at that time. But she was incredibly kind and she was just like, I've run this race before if you ever want to talk about anything you can reach out to me and uh yeah she's been very kind over the years with things and sometimes she can just articulate exactly the issue that i'm and trying like, to discuss and she's like, oh, okay so this is what's happening with this yeah. and this and these are your choices so i'm like oh but that's incredibly kind yeah. she doesn't need to do that and i'm conscious that whenever we have the opportunity for, things for the like next that, people coming through like to pay yeah. that. just because it's hard enough because yeah. <laughs> it it's, it's, it's hard enough without just there is no hr there's no oh, I'll just Google what I should do in this yeah, work no situation. It doesn't really apply sometimes. So yes, helpful to have wiser women to ask these things. Uh, I want to talk, Lauren, about Church's breakthrough hit, uh, The Mother We Share. Tell me a little bit about this song, the meaning behind it and any notable lyrics you want to discuss. It's interesting because people have so many different interpretations of what that Mm. lyric means. And I guess for me, it was never about literal mothers. I always take it to be about just whatever the thing is that keeps you together, if that makes sense. 
yeah. and yeah. a maternal um, figure and that doesn't have to be a mother it's just yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think, but I don't know, over the course of time, I'm like, there was writing about mothers in the last album. I'm like, why are we always <laughs> writing about these things? And I've noticed that there's always a lot of water imagery and imagery about body, like body parts, not in the mm. macabre way, but it's mm. always like ha- hands, eyes. Mm. And I wonder, I'm like, hmm, maybe at some point I should ask somebody about this. I'm like, what do all these things mean? But who knows? I guess that's the great thing about writing and making any kind of music or art is that you don't really know necessarily consciously at the time what you're talking about sometimes. That's so interesting because I always think with songs you know you know to all those people who come and watch you each song can be interpreted in so many ways Mm. one song might trigger someone to a bad memory or to someone else to like a happy memory and I always think but but I said deep down you know the the actual singer or the songwriter will know what it means I'm like actually they mightn't even know what it means because it might change the meaning might change for them. Yeah and sometimes you have a conscious you're conscious that this is exactly what this song is about but there's certain lines that mm. you're not quite sure of until after the fact. Like the record we just put out when we were getting the masters back, I was like, oh, there's kind of a lot of looping back and recurring things that weave in and out. Happens subconsciously, do you think? That I you think didn't... so. Yeah. Just, yeah, I remember getting the master back and be like, oh, the opening line of one song is like writing a book on how to stay conscious when you drown. And then in another song, it's like <gasps> closing the book I never meant to start. And I was like, oh. I didn't realize that at the time. And I'm like, those were recurring themes. Yeah. For this record, I definitely knew I wanted there to be consistent imagery and it was supposed to be cinematic and referencing horror stuff and female tropes in horror. But I wasn't necessarily conscious of pulling the threads that tightly. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, well, the subconscious was doing the work anyway, so it's all fine. (laughs) You've called your new album Screen Violence and I know you've said it's a semi-concept album about male violence. Can you tell us more about the concept and how it came about? Well, Screen Violence was actually a proposed band name that we never used. Um, Really? Yeah. So we talked about it a lot at the time. And then the reason we didn't choose it was because we thought it was maybe too retro, given that the band already sounded quite 80s. We were like, "Mm, maybe that's going to be too much. But we thought, oh, maybe we'll call an EP that or something. And we were touring... It was towards the end of the touring, the third album, I found this list of band names. And I looked at this list of things and I was like, yes, that'll be a great just like working title for something. And I knew that the guys would connect with it because they love all the soundtracks to those kind of films from that era, the John Carpenter, Bad Lamenti mm. stuff. And for me, I th- at the beginning, I think I tricked myself into thinking I would write something that's like purely concept and it's nothing to do with me because I don't really want to dig into anything in here at mm. this time. Because mm. if you pull one thread, the whole thing, the whole thing might unravel. So I was yeah. like, I can't do that. But after writing a few songs, I was like, oh, it's like, it's a metaphor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then I like the idea that I'm like, you could take all this imagery and build this kind of backdrop, but still tell personal stories in it. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's sometimes the the best way to tell the truth is to put it through a lens of a little bit of fiction or an artifice that means you can say, Mm -hmm. if I just put a big list of sad things, (laughs) I think that would not, wouldn't be terribly fun for people to listen to and I think the best thing I can say about the record is that it does feel quite escapist in some ways like it's saying Mm. stuff that's quite brutal in some ways but it does feel escapist because it has this concept around it and yeah making that record not knowing if we could tour Mm. meant we were a lot more conscious of the the visuals and the imagery and if people are getting this record in a world where they still can't go outside how can you help make this 
an escapist thing for them. They can go get lost in the record and they can mm. feel mm-hmm. cathartic or they can feel very sad or they can feel whatever they want to feel. But yeah, yeah, I think that's the nicest thing to do and just to build a little world to experience the record in. Mm. <laughs> It seems like you are making a pretty direct comment on the way society talks about and views violence against women. And I do feel like there's a kind of voyeuristic secondhand obsession with violence against women. And people in news stories don't know how to handle those things. They talk about the grotesque act rather than why is this happening? And then what happens after that? What happens to the woman after that? Mm. And I think for me that that's... When I look at this record, I'm like, well, this record is the answer to that. So if like, or if all the times that people ask me, what's that like? What can we do about online trolling? Like, and I'm like, why do you keep saying online trolling? It's not like it just exists online. It's mm. men doing this online. That's not mm. like, it's about mm. a mentality. And I feel like we just talked about it to death. It got to a point where I was like, oh man, if this question comes up in another <laughs> interview. And then it's mm. just moved on from after 10 seconds. I think people don't necessarily realise. They're like, oh, death threats, rape threats. Does that make you feel bad? Discuss that. Okay, so the next tour. And you're like, what is happening? It's just a weird reality to Mm. live in. And yeah, I think it was helpful for me to process some of those things on the record. And there's some heavy stuff, but I think for me it's been great playing it live because you see how much catharsis, but hope and perseverance there is in that. Yeah. And I feel like that's something a lot of women can hopefully connect with is that you need to get out and express the, the poison otherwise yeah. you'll go insane but then you want to be hopeful and you want to find a way to move forward and keep swinging and yeah that's what's been nice about the shows especially seeing groups of women coming together I like it when they get to the one that's their song yeah. <laughs> that I is. love this remember this like, one oh, yeah 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 yes here we go ladies this <laughs> one's for you <laughs> One thing I want to ask you, Lauren, and I think like as a woman, you know, especially when you're you know, a lead singer of a really successful band, there's a huge strength in that. And, and I feel someone who I feel very independent. I feel very strong. But I also feel like shit and weak as fuck and all these other emotions sometimes, mm-hmm. which I hate, especially a, a, as, as a female. And it's a minefield sometimes to kind of grasp it. Even simple things when like, like today, I can't even look at the news sometimes because there's always a woman attacked somewhere in London. I live mm-hmm. in London and, and I'm someone who very much is happy to speak their mind but won't go for a walk with the dog if it gets dark outside and that's just accepted and it's only every now and then I'm kind of like how messed up is this world that we live in where I don't know if you get that with like the guys that you work with and stuff that, that they can do things that you can't do and I find I have these two sides where like I want to be strong but I also just feel really weak all the time and scared yeah and I think that's definitely something we've talked about in the band over the course of time was me trying to make it clear to people. Well, during the day, if you want, when we're at a venue, when there's security threats around the band, if you want, you can still go to the guitar shop. You don't have to think twice about it. I don't leave the building because we are not a wealthy enough band to afford security that's not connected to the building. So you could be the most famous woman in the world, but it doesn't, no amount of success or privilege will really free you from those things. You know, obviously you're able, there's a luxury in that that is not afforded to women in other situations, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the end of the day, those things aren't changing. And yeah, it's interesting when people talk about, especially because what we represent as the persona is strength and take no shit and don't do this and don't mm. like, don't you listen to them, do what you want. Yeah. But then so many of the songs couldn't have, don't exist without, as you say, like weakness and feeling weak and feeling regretful and mm. having done things you wish you hadn't or accepted things you wish you hadn't. Mm. I would say there's one in every 20 churches songs is, uh, yeah, 
fuck off. <laughs> like, every 19 other ones being like, and then this happened and it was so bad. <laughs> so, you know, the balance is there. What a great breakdown of your album yes. and your music career. <laughs> You know, you talk about like garbage when they first came out and what they probably had to deal with compared to what churches is dealing with to then maybe the next. Is it getting better? Do you see it getting better or is it just new things to deal with? With like not saying online trolling, but there's just a new there's just new platforms to kind of to deal with and new different sides to it that it changes rather than it necessarily getting better for women. Um, I think hopefully people who are coming into entertainment now have a better understanding of what social media is going to be like I feel like mm. I'm 34 now and I remember being on tour and our manager being like you guys should get this thing called Instagram and we were like huh we should get that but like not knowing what it was and not I don't think we fully understood yeah. what it was going to entail because it was such an I still don't fully understand you know, but like yeah. such an evolving thing and I think somebody 10 years younger than me will have a better understanding of how you want to use that and what you don't want to look at and how you don't want yeah. to engage with it and how you can use it in a way that's creative mm. but yeah, yeah even seeing stuff that's being playlisted or booked it does feel like people are making a conscious effort with booking and I do there's just so many cool young female artists making so many different kinds of music at this point I feel like that's really encouraging and even a few years ago mm. I remember seeing news stories of uh, festival bookers getting in in the shit for their lineups not being very diverse and then they'd be like oh but yeah. we booked churches though and I was like don't bring me into this like and then, don't be you yeah. know but then also looking at that I was like oh congratulations yeah. you booked a, a band that has one woman in it one third of the band is female that's a straight white woman and you booked me but they made it sound like yeah. you booked me as a favor but you booked me because I sell you good tickets and then you're using that to cover your back because yeah. you couldn't find any other female yeah. artist to book. That seems quite odd to me. Yeah. And I don't think that yeah. that excuse is valid anymore because there's been so many great artists coming through in the last few years. So I'm hopeful that that, mm. will, that will evolve. And yeah. then they can book me to open for them when I'm a little old granny. <laughs> <laughs> Before I let you go, Lauren, thank you so much. I really love this chat. And we've talked about different women in music already. You've, you've talked about some of you, the w women you listened to growing up and influences. But the one question I ask everyone, hail the queen, who is the greatest female musician of all time? Well, I'm not just saying this because I can see her in the background of your of your room. But oh! Debbie Harry, man. Debbie Harry yeah. has to be yeah. my number one. I love her. And I always love that she was so involved and invested in other people's art. And she was so invested in the visual art community and fashion and design and when she made her solo album she was like I'm gonna dye my hair brown and make a weird album I'm gonna have Geiger do the cover art and she's just always done whatever it is that she wanted to do and mm -hmm. such an iconic voice and iconic image and yeah Debbie Debbie for the win I think for an episode that's about breaking the mold I think Debbie Harry is the perfect person to choose yes perfect love her, love her. Uh, Lauren thank you so much for joining me in the podcast thank you so much for having me that's all for this episode. Remember, you can listen to all the songs featured in today's episode at the Hear Her Voice Breaking the Mold playlist on Spotify. And if you like what you've heard and want to hear more, please do like and subscribe to the Hear Her Voice podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode. Next time on Hear Her Voice, I'll be talking about the sisterhood with my very special guests, Lucy Porter and Nicola Roberts. Until next time, take care. <laughs>